Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A culture's moral platitudes expose the sins for which its adherents hope to atone. This tension is present in popular critiques of the biblical commandment, an eye for an eye. But what happens when our assumed high ground amplifies the sins we want to erase? Worse, what if the people harmed by our platitudes respond to our abuse with a counter-morality? What happens when society disintegrates into a community of justified ideologues and entitled victims? Richard and I discuss St. Paul's compensation in 1 Corinthians, the merciless servant in Matthew, and the problem of vengeance in the book of Judges and 1 and 2 Kings. Given the state of the world, the instruction, an eye for an eye, may be a goal beyond our reach. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 83 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are moving on from Ecclesiastes, and we would like to talk this week about a great sermon, Richard, that you gave. Right. The problem with human beings is that they are self-righteous. They see themselves as victims and are self-righteous, and then will go on to do whatever they want to do because they feel justified. And that's the worst thing that human beings do, is they feel justified. A great example of this is, again, the civil rights movement in the U.S. today. You have a problem where there is institutional abuse of people of a certain social, economic, or racial class within our culture. And the response is anger. And the anger feels justified because a wrong has been committed. And so you have people committing terrible acts because they feel justified in rioting. And then, of course, you have people who feel white guilt who then decide there's a way to fix their white guilt. And then they feel justified because of all the crimes of white society. And they go around inventing new moralities every day and abusing people with those ideologies. I mean, this is the story of the modern Middle East. It's Western society, European society, atoning for its own mistakes through the vehicle of a morality that it's imposing on other societies after paying for their sins at the expense of these other communities. So this kind of self-righteousness is a big issue right now. Even in personal relationships, so-and-so did this to me, which was objectively wrong and mean. So now what am I going to do? Everyone I come into contact with, I'm going to poison their relationship with this person and make them pay. So now rather than this person losing one friend, I'm going to make sure they lose five. 
So the common denominator in all of these examples is someone feels justified. Someone has decided that something is immoral, and so they feel justified in promoting an ideology or immorality. Somebody feels wronged, and so therefore they feel justified in righting that wrong up to and including an act of vengeance or an act of war. I mean, there's so many examples, and it seems as though we've come to a moment in American history where we have forgotten those prophetic voices within our own culture that called for something different than vengeance, that called for something different than violence. In the readings for Sunday, we had on the one hand the epistle from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, you know what? I deserve, I'm entitled to have payment from you. What kind of normal person would not take what they're entitled to? He said, the problem is that the one who sent me doesn't allow me to take any payment for what I'm doing. So whether I like it or not, I am not allowed to take anything from you. Well, and it's a clever argument because what Paul is doing is having his cake and eating it too the way that only a father can do. You can tell your children you can't do this. And as a father, you can go off and do it, and your children have no say. Now, I realize now people want to say that's wrong, and the children should have a say, and they want to put their parents under a microscope. But that, according to me, is baloney. Paul is behaving as a classic parent. This is the rule, and I can have it both ways. But what's interesting about the way Paul is playing the game here is that he's having it both ways at his own expense and in such a way that no one can say anything nice about Paul for the fact that he's not taking a salary. Because his boasting is always about the cross. He can't boast about how generous Paul is. So in fact, Paul is being a jerk in order to preach the gospel. And this, I think, is what is preserved in the beauty of parental hypocrisy, which is so essential for correct parenting in order to avoid the entitlement mentality. Because that's what we're dealing with here, isn't it? Nobody works without taking what they deserve, or at least boasting for not taking what they deserve. Nobody does what Paul is doing. And this is important to understand in the context of the Bible. So in the gospel reading from Matthew, we have the king who forgives the debt to his servant, and then the servant is owed a debt from another servant, which then he extracts from the servant and even sends him to jail until he gets the last penny from this guy. And then the very generous king from the beginning of the story says, you know, on second thought, I'm going to send you to prison. I forgave you this debt of 10,000 when you could not forgive someone 100. And this is precisely how human beings act. Even when they are given generously, they forget what was given to them they forget the generosity shown to them. And then they become like the servant who says, well, I'm entitled to this hundred from this person. They owe me. But that's why I love scripture, because parental generosity in scripture is a mechanism of entrapment. Because scripture understands that the default setting for the child or the disciple is one of entitlement. Entitlement. And so the parent, in being generous, has to understand that no one will appreciate their generosity. Generosity does not work as a mechanism of instruction until you come around the back door and manifest a different personality to the one you're teaching. So I was the one who gave you all these things and you've been consuming them and all along you've behaved as though you were entitled to them and even worse, you treated others poorly. 
You were not merciful when you should have been. You were greedy when you should have shared. And so now, guess what? There is a price for my grace. So the instruction comes at that moment when you show the person to whom you've been generous how poorly they've acted on your generosity, and then you close the door on them. Then you've got them. So really what God does when he is so generous in Scripture is he lays the groundwork for a case against you. The basis of understanding Hosea is that the people think, oh, because I ask this God or ask that God, I get the stuff that I want when I need something. I always know there's someone I can go and ask and I'll get it. And then the Lord explains to them, no, no one is giving you anything except me. You think you're getting it from these other gods. You're showing yourselves to be a harlot by going after these other gods. But I'm the only one who's ever provided anything for you. You have not gotten anything from any one of those gods. And here's how I will prove it. I will now cut off everything from you. And you'll see how much you get from those other gods. You'll get nothing. Because when I decide you get nothing, you get nothing. When I decide you get something, you get something. I am the only spigot you can turn on and off. There are not multiple faucets. There's one faucet and it's me. And when I say it's closed, it's closed. You have no other options. And this is what one has to understand is where it's coming from. And this is how the Lord teaches through the prophets. But the situations he's dealing with are very interesting and very subtle. So another thing that I talked about during my sermon was stories from the Old Testament that we have showing exactly how someone who is wronged feels entitled and then goes way overboard. I want to take a step back from the conversation before we jump into kings and judges. We're describing this parental mode of behavior that God exhibits, where you are generous in order to lay essentially the legal trap for your child or your disciple. And then when they demonstrate ingratitude, you use your generosity against them. Now, in the stories that we hear, this plays out different ways with different actions that I think we can draw upon to inform our own teaching and our own parenting. However, the reality is that in daily life, things go well sometimes, and other times they go very poorly. And ultimately, it's always important to remember this. What these stories are doing is taking the opportunity of something going wrong in your life as an opportunity to give instruction. So it may be that you have lots of money coming in from your business one day and then it's gone the next. And then suddenly you hear a biblical story implying that it's God who took it away. That forces you to examine why God might have taken it away. It's not that he literally took it away. It's that you give yourself over to fate under the lamp of biblical instruction. This flows very nicely from what we've discovered from Ecclesiastes, that all this work that we're doing, and whether it ends up well or ends up badly, it's all ultimately to gain wisdom. And so understand that there is a greater scheme at work than what we can perceive with our own senses. And that's how the Bible offers us wisdom, is by giving us a hint about what's the bigger structure that this all fits into. So we have this example at the end of Judges, and there is a Levite traveling, and he's going through Benjamin, and he needs to find a place to stay for the night. And so he goes to Gibeah. And at Gibeah, he can't find anyone who will take care of him. He even offers. He says, I have even food to feed my own ass, and for myself, I just need a place to sleep. No one will take him in. And so finally, an old man does take him in. As soon as he does, the townspeople come, and they want to take the man and do something horrible with him. 
Instead, they take his concubine and they abuse her to death. She dies. And the Levite is so incensed the next morning that he chops her up into pieces and then sends a piece of her to each of the tribes of Israel to say, look at what Benjamin has done. Can I just say that this is horrible? This is a horrible story. It rivals or is at least on a par with any of the ghastly, murderous stories that we've read about in the last 20, 30 years in the U.S. where you have serial killers or mafia types. And gang rape. and It's as bad as it gets. As disgusting as what the Levite did was, I have to imagine that there are people hearing this story thinking to themselves, well, what happened was so terrible, his anger is justified. Gang rape to death of an innocent woman, it doesn't get any worse than that. This is how the story sets us up, because of course the Levite is justified in being angry. So what does he do? He comes back. There's a big discussion with the other heads of Israel and Mitzvah. And they decide that they're going to lay down an ultimatum, bring out the people who did this act, or we're going to destroy you. There are 26,000 Benjaminites, and in the end, the Lord says, I'll deliver them over to you. 25,000 Benjaminites are dead. But even this is not enough for the Israelites. Once the Israelites have killed 25,000 Benjaminites, They proceed to then burn down all the towns of Benjamin. But then they feel guilty. Oh no, what have we done? Is it our right to cut off an entire tribe from God's people? They already swore an oath that they aren't allowed to give any of their daughters to marriage to Benjaminites. They slaughtered all the Benjaminites. So what's going to happen? They're going to die off. So the Israelites find themselves in a pickle. We need to allow Benjamin to continue, but we can't break our oath. Well, let's think. There was a tribe in Israel who didn't go to war against Benjamin. How dare they do that? Here's what we'll do. We'll take that tribe and we will kill all of their men, all of their married women, and all of their virgins will hand over to Benjamin so that they can reproduce and then we won't lose this extra tribe. Fantastic solution. The solution to the problem is to kill the most peaceful people among you and give them over to the people you just decimated. That's exactly how we'll atone for the Holocaust. We will feel really bad about how terrible genocide is. Then we'll force another people out of their home and give their land to the people that we abused. Then we'll feel better, but we will have abused two groups of people. Fantastic! Afghanistan upset us. But now we have another reason once we destroy Afghanistan to destroy Iraq. And then now that Iraq is destroyed and we have all these refugees flowing into Syria, then what we'll do is we'll destabilize the government of Syria and then destruction happens there and they flow into Turkey and Europe. they tell us was our moral obligation to dismantle Syria. Shame upon shame. And I know there are people listening to this podcast who are saying, what are you guys talking about? Isn't this leader so evil? Isn't that leader just like Hitler? My response to you is, what are you talking about? Syria used to be a nice place to live. I was there in 2010. I saw it. It was a nice place. People lived in peace. They had their institutions worked. But anyways. So what happens with the Israelites is there's this justifiable evil that happens, objective evil that happens. I mean, it's so evil that it looks just like Sodom, right? And what do they do? In order to justify the death of this woman, they kill 25,000 people. 
destroy all of their cities, and then among themselves find more people to kill. This is why in Exodus, God lays down a rule that there is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. On the one hand, I think, and I wrote about this, this reflects just how biblical judgment works, that there's a cause and a reaction, a cause and an effect. At the same time, though, and this is really important, in giving this rule, God is setting a boundary on one's self-righteousness, meaning that even if God, in his mercy or in his judgment, allows vengeance, there's a cap on vengeance. You are not given a blank check to go gut the Middle East because one of your buildings got blown up. You know, people make fun of this expression, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We'd all be blind and toothless. Well, with all due respect, whatever you're proposing as an alternative to biblical wisdom did not save Iraq or Syria. So please temper your criticism of the Bible here. Well, we say if we did that, that is, if we took vengeance. The thing is, is that human beings take more than what they deserve. This is the human condition. And when it says eye for an eye, what it's saying is, don't take more than God has allotted to you. If someone blinds your family member, then you can blind the other person. You can't kill them. You can't kill their family. You can't burn down their town. This is what it's saying. It's saying that the punishment must fit the crime. But the human being always commits a bigger crime in vengeance than the original crime. And this is the scandal that you're highlighting in the extermination of the Benjaminites. I mean, this is exactly the point, that there was a measure of vengeance allotted by God, but they went well beyond that. So this is the story that happens at the very end of Judges. And later on in Kings, we have the story at the split of the northern and southern kingdom. King Solomon has a governor, a young man that he appreciates, Jeroboam, and makes him a governor. And when Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king in his place. So Rehoboam is trying to figure out how he's going to interact with the northerners. Now, previously, Solomon was known for conscripting Israelites from all throughout the kingdom in order to build his temple. And this was considered oppressive for obvious reasons by the outlying areas. So Rehoboam is trying to figure out what is he going to do. He asks his advisors. The old wise advisors say, cut him a break. The young advisors say, go get them. Squash them like they've never been squashed before. Crush them. Crush them completely. Because once we liberate Iraq, there'll be democracy all throughout the Middle East. I promise. Yeah. And once he does that, Jeroboam comes from the north as a representative and says, hey, wait a second. We served your father. Why don't you cut us a break? And Rehoboam has this beautiful line, my little finger is thicker than the loins of my father, and loins of the father is a euphemism for his genitalia. My little finger is bigger than my father's. Let me give you a hint. Those of you sitting comfortably in your armchairs or in your luxury vehicles listening to this podcast, I don't even know if any of our listeners have luxury vehicles, but it's fun to imagine somebody's more comfortable than we are right now. You're sitting there listening and you're thinking, wow, that's really funny and cool. But in scripture, the one who ridicules his father or claims to be greater than his father is usually the moron or the antagonist 
or the monster. So let's see how this story plays out. So the way that it plays out is then Jeroboam goes back to his people and he decides to break off completely from David's house. This is already problematic to break off from David's house. But then what happens when Jeroboam decides to break off from the house? Now Jeroboam is justified. Rehoboam explicitly says, I have and I will continue to oppress you and everyone up there. Jeroboam is correct in cutting himself off. Then what does he do? Well, I can't send my people down to Jerusalem now for festivals. How are they going to worship? Those people are terrible down there. We're not going to send our people down there. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to set up golden calves. I'm going to found my own church where we're not going to make the same mistakes as our fathers. Yeah. We're going to get it right this time. We're going to get it right this time. And so we're going to set up these golden calves. And what does Jeroboam say? Behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Precisely the words of Aaron when he created the golden calf when Moses was on Mount Sinai. The prototypical example of apostasy and sin, Jeroboam quotes it in his own words and his own action. So Jeroboam justified in cutting himself off from the south, but goes way too far into clear apostasy territory. So he's justifying himself to set up whatever he wants to set up. He's going to cut himself off from Jerusalem. He's going to cut himself off from David. And he's going to cut himself off from plain common sense and commit straightforward apostasy. So look at the paradigm. The one who believes that he's more of a man than his father is the abuser, which is typical. As they say in psychology, the abused becomes the abuser. So he's angry at his father about something, and now he's worse than his father. And the one who's wronged by the abuser now feels justified in becoming an even greater abuser. So you have two examples of how people puff themselves up. That's why I think the scriptural paradigm of making yourself smaller than your ancestors, number one, and number two, disallowing yourself indulgence in the mentality of the victim. These are two cornerstones of undermining Pharisaism in Scripture. And my problem in modern culture is that these are two pinnacles of popular culture. Everybody feels a victim. Everybody feels wronged. Everyone has boundaries you can't cross because they're very sensitive and they're hurt by these boundaries. And everybody has a story to tell about how terrible their parents were. What you've done is you've canonized abuse in Western culture, and it's happening. It's happening in front of our very eyes with all these acts of violence and all these broken families. But it just has to happen in one occurrence in a family. My brother did such and such to me, so I'm going to make sure that my children, my brothers, my sisters, and their children all cut this person off. Or my brothers, my sisters, and their children all make sure that we program every generation never to be like this person. So not only does everybody now hate this person, which is silly, but everyone now is trying to correct for their behavior, whatever it was, which obviously was embellished in the imagination of the one who felt wronged. And so now in trying to correct that abuse by trying to be better or different than that person, you've created a new monster. When the solution isn't to try to raise your kids differently or do it different than your parents did it or try to exact vengeance on someone, the truth and the solution is to 
put down the mantle of self-righteousness. And on this note, I want to return to what Paul was saying. Now that we can see how impossible it is to do what Paul is doing. For Paul to live the gospel and to teach the gospel, he has to take less than he deserves. He has to, because the point of his existence, the point of his teaching, the point of the cross is you don't take what you deserve. Jesus himself said, I could destroy you, but I refuse to. This is the difference between Jesus and every single human being. I could destroy you. I could destroy your entire army. I have a right to destroy you. And I have a right to. And in fact, one day I will do it. But now I will not do it. And I refuse to take the opportunity to take what I deserve. And in both the case of Jesus and Paul, it's not that they didn't want to exact vengeance. Or in the case of Jesus, that he didn't want to protect himself. Or that Paul didn't want to sell or whatever. It's that their father said no. This is extremely important. That in both cases, these characters who are the most important characters in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, and they are even coupled as such in the language of Acts and the poetry of Acts, that these two characters do not act of their own free will. They do what they are told to do by their father. It's a big deal. So the commission to us then is on the one hand there's no possibility that we won't take more than we deserve because we're human beings on the other hand we have to keep guard at our self-justification and our supposed victimhood even actual objective victimhood and keep watch over what we think we deserve as a result and refuse to take it my kids know now when they have a conflict or when they feel wronged and they start whining, the minute I pay attention to what's happening, I don't even have to ask them anymore. They say, oh, I'm sorry, Papa. I'm not a victim. There are only two ways to solve fights in our household. If you're fighting over something, I just take it away because it belongs to Mama and Papa. It doesn't belong to you. And you have to confess that it belongs to Papa and that it's not yours. Or... I make you recite our creed in the Bulos household. I am not a victim. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank Benjamin. you, Father. Have a great week. You too. Bye. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred 
and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, what we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.